We've been to all four corners of Britain in our quest to interview the great and good of entertainment. Comics, actors, writers, politicians, singers, dancers and choreographers. It doesn't matter who they are. They've all given me their own take on the world they live in and have, in their own way, helped to define what makes Britain great. So join me and my assistants as we get another insight into the marvellous and enigmatic world of showbiz here on Beyond the Title. Writer, actor and comedian Joe Wilkinson burst onto the comedy circuit in 2006 when he won the new Act Award at the Hackney Empire. Supporting Alan Carr and Russell Howard on their nationwide tours helped to catapult Joe into the comedy elite and by 2012 secured a spot on Channel 4's popular panel show 8 Out of 10 Cats Does Countdown where his moments of surrealism remains to date. In 2019, Wilkinson appeared as Jeffrey in the first series of the Netflix original series Sex Education and featured in Ricky Gervais' comedy drama Afterlife as the aptly named Postman Pat, the incompetent and nosy postman of the main character Street. I caught up with the British comedy's newest surrealist to talk heroes, laughter and his hopes for the future. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr Joe Wilkinson. Uh, so firstly, we're speaking just a week after the news broke of the sad death of the great Sean Locke. It, mm. It's unbelievable that we're speaking about him in the past tense, but what are yeah. your defining memories of working with him? Well, I, I Sean was um, basically one of my heroes before I met him, and he still was while I was had the pleasure of um, working with him. I... I ended up working for many years with Diane Morgan over our shared love of Sean Locke. We were both word perfect on his um, on his shows, and yeah, he uh, he went a hell of a lot to to every, all, all all comedians, I think, because he was he was one of our all time greats, and I and I feel honoured to have had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with him and get to know him and become friends with him and uh it was it was a is yeah it's been a hard thing to take um yeah it's it's you know it's hit everyone very very hard and yes yeah, a huge huge loss and tra- tragic tragic you know obviously for his family and friends and everyone i've had i've had messages from all over the world and people saying you know how how much he, he meant to them and how brilliant he was and it was all utterly deserved and he he genuinely is is one of our all time greats and I think people are I've realised people are now finding more and more of his stuff and sort of realising you know most people realise even more people are realising just how amazing he was and. Yeah, ter- terrible, terrible. And, you know, I, th- I think it's going to hit us in ways because I, I was talking to someone who worked with him as well. And when you when you are a comedian, you go months without working with people and then you see them because you're working on a job. So I think it's going to hit us again when next time we would have all been together. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's going to be, yeah, but very, very sad. Yeah. So sorry to start with such no, a... No, 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 no. So it's okay. It's, it's um, yeah. I've... I've 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 found it really nice talking about him and oh, kind of yeah yeah absolutely but yeah yeah yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. it makes it a bit more real I think as well. how do you think he'll be remembered 
I think he will be remembered as one of the all-time greats. And as I said, and I think um, I've been watching lots of interviews with like people who are much, much closer to him than me, like Harry Hill and Bill Bailey. And, and they, they, they sort of said that, uh, they, they said it much more concisely than me, but basically he was a comedian's comedian, basically. He, and deep down, I think we're, that's what you all want to be, the, the, the one where people go, you know, the, the, he sets the standard and, uh, and you would watch him and you would, you would kind of go, uh, well, I personally would go, you know, I still do, you know, what would Sean think of that? bit of material could I do it in front of him would he would he roll his eyes at me or would he or would he laugh and, and it it raised it raised the um raised the bar and Nick Helms said it many years ago he sort of he was talking about I think he was interviewed and saying you know who who are your favorite comedians and he started just started talking about Sean and said basically it doesn't matter if no one else laughs but if Sean did you could be in a Theatre of two thousand people, and no one laughs. But you hear Sean laugh. That's, that's better than the other two two thousand. And he—that's what he says. I'm 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 stealing from him, but I remember that stuck in my head. I was like, yeah, that's that's what he that's what he did. You know, it was he was he was the best. So you kind of um, you wanted to <laughs> you wanted to make him laugh, not anyone else really. Yeah. So that's the quite telling to how what genius he was and. Um, yeah, I think as time goes on, people will remember him with Peter Cook and people like that. I think the all-time greats. I suppose, as is the most popular and successful route into comedy in the modern era, you started your career doing open mic nights in your local pub. Yeah. Um, in your opinion, how important are local open mics to discovering new and emerging talent? Um, it's impossible, isn't it? I think it's impossible to kind of for, for anyone to get anywhere because when I when I um I when I started watching stand-up I remember going to the comedy store that's that's where you know I thought those big sort of clubs were were just where stand-up was and I remember looking at I remember so clearly who was on the road it was Paul Tonkinson and Ricky Grover and those guys and I remember just thinking how the hell do they do it you know like hey because there's suddenly there's 400 people in a room and it's Saturday night and it's it's just looked impossible. And it is impossible if you just stood up there and went up in front of 400 people. So you go to these, and then I found out there was this, as you said, this open mic circuit. When I started, there was a, a thing in time out that would list all the gigs and they'd have a telephone number and you'd phone up and you go, can I get on and blah, blah, blah. And I started going to all these and realising that there was 10 people in a room and you could go up and you could just do anything and it didn't matter and you do you know I guess you do that for well I was probably on the open mic circuit a lot longer than other people but you sort of do it for about six years and it doesn't matter you just learn how to do it and you you can fail and fail and fail and fail and get better and better and better and without that I don't know how you start and obviously with something like the pandemic and a lot of these clubs obviously falling away it is a worry and and it is like well how does how does someone get better it's like anything you you, you know if you're a hundred meter sprinter you don't you don't start in the commonwealth games do you know what I mean you've got to you've got to start somewhere so they're really important and I think I think there's um there's a real it's a it's a great time as well when you're doing comedy because you just got all your little mates 
And there's only when we start, there's only a few gigs, so you just see the same few people <laughs> over and over again. So it's a lovely time as well. And it's the time when you most you, you make most friends. And in comedy, we call it out what year, like a school year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so when, when you started, I started in the same school year as Kevin Bridges and Sarah Milliken and Alistair Green and people like that. And we all um that's what that's our school year, because that was the time we all were doing that. We started the open mic together. Yeah. So yeah. so important, but yeah, hope hope you know. I think, and there, there was a lot less comedians when we were doing it, so it was kind of easy to get on. I don't, I, you know, I I hear about how there's ten times more people, and I go, God, they must have to really battle to get gigs. But yeah, it's it's all part. It does sort of sift out the people that don't really want to do it though, because it's so hard. Because <laughs> you sort of. You're fighting for gigs and yeah. survival on. of the fittest yeah it really is and you go well how badly do you want this do, yeah. do you know what i mean so yeah really important yeah in 2006 you won the hackney empire new act of the year oh my god i did yes how did this give you a springboard on to which to progress through the comedy industry um do you know what these these um competitions are, are fine they're great they are you know there's a lovely thing to win but I think honestly, they're slightly detrimental. If I'm totally honest, that you know, it does it does give you a little lift because people go, oh, he must be he must be decent. But they're like comedy isn't really a competition. It's sort of like I think it because only one person wins. It knocks a lot more people than it raises one person's spirits. If you know what I mean, and yeah. and and for every you know, there's lots of competitions. There's the Hackney Empire thing. There's um, uh so you think you're funny laughing horse a few others and um they're great but there's for every great person that won it there's another hundred great ones that didn't win it and so it i I don't wholeheartedly agree with them because i think it's not a race and people find their feet at different times and so you know a competition you have to find your feet in the first couple of years because you do them all in the first couple of years basically and uh, and if you haven't found your feet or your voice or whatever, then you don't do very well in them. And you think start to might think, you know, well done, I crap. And and that's not what it's about. It's about kind of just getting better. And I think I also feel that about the Edinburgh Fringe with the awards and stuff. I think it rewards very few and kind of gives everyone else a bit of a kick in the teeth. And I don't think that's what it's about. I think it's about kind of taking a sharp and kind of going this is what I do and some people like it some people won't and and that's comedy you know like if you if you said who's the best comedian in the world everyone would have a different answer so there is no there is no competition winner yeah. And you can't cater for everyone. You know, like you say, everyone's got a different taste, a different opinion, a different, you know, style of comedy that some people might like. And Absolutely. And I think it, it's always, you know, when Serenian, really, I'm quoting someone else, but when I can't remember who said it, but there's, you know, especially online and you, you, you must see this online where people go, Oh, that, that comedian's rubbish. And, and, uh, they go, no, I go, they're not rubbish. They're just not to your taste. Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? It's like, I, I guarantee you, anyone who's got to a, a certain standard is not rubbish. 
they're just they're just not your taste because it's sort of you know the the open mic is is full of different abilities let's be honest but then when you get further and further along and if people have, have, have managed to get through to that point they're not rubbish they're just not your cup of tea mm-hmm. so when people go oh you're this person's shit or whatever and you go well you might that's what you think that's not a fact that's just your and that's fine yeah. the fact you put it online i find a bit weird but but no it's not it's not sort of yeah no no one's yeah, no one's everyone's. You don't want to be everyone's taste as well. Trust me, you don't. You don't want to be. You want fifty percent people to not get it. That's that's the that's where you want to be definitely, because then then I that's you know my opinion again, which is not fact at all. But in my opinion, I think you want you want to baffle a few people. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, where do we get to? Typically, comedy is all about creating a, char- a character to project onto an audience, which is something you have achieved with great effects. Oh, shut up, you. <laughs> <laughs> when, <laughs> when owning a character or alter ego, what's the process which one has to go through? It's, um, it, is, it's, it is really about finding your voice. And I don't, I don't think anyone really sets out to have their find their voice or their character, I think it's um, it's a really long journey. I think because I I think it's usually like a seed of something that's in you, and then you sort of let that part of you sort of flourish mm-hmm. and embrace it. And what happened for me when I when I found my voice, my persona, my character, whatever you want to call it, I, I've the, everything became easier. I, I had an angle, and and there's a. There's a lot, I listen to a lot of interviews and things, you know, because I'm still a comedy fan. And and, uh, and a lot of comedians, they, they talk about kind of how some comedians have a, have almost like a sitcom character. And it's there and you can, like, like I guess, um, you know, like someone like Rob Beckett, he, he's, a, he's a cheeky, chappy idiot, not quite naive, not quite getting the world, blah, blah, blah. He's, he's not that in real life. He is, you know, he's from South London, but he's not an idiot. But he, he's, he's taken the idiot side of his personality because we're all bright and idiotic in different ways, and he's created his character. And now all the jokes have a, have a direction. They all have a clarity. They all have parameters. So, you know, there's, there's, you know all comedians do this. They write, they write, they think of an idea, and they write something, and they go, oh, but it just doesn't work for my character. And I write, I write that all the time. I, I think so all the time. And I, I might talk about, uh, I might ha- have an idea about um, a relationship, about being in a relationship. I mean, something about me and my other half. But my character is not in a relationship, doesn't have any, has never had any success with women. Is a, you know, so, so I can't write that. I, I can't say that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because it, it doesn't fall under my character's world and 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 i'm sure people like you know tom allen and rob beckett and those guys they 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 come up with stuff and you go yeah but that will make like rob for example go yeah but that will make you look clever yeah so he couldn't write that you know he he must come up with all the, all the stuff but his angle has always got to be sort of like naive idiot yeah. you know sort of jack the lad kind <clears throat> of bit of a del boy so if he has an idea that you go well how does he know about that he can't, he can't, he can't write it. Yeah, no. so, so, but it does, it does, um, 
it does give you an angle on every subject. Like my, I, you know, when when I do these different shows and stuff, and I, and there's they say, oh, they want you to talk about this. I've got an angle, you know. I I, I have an angle on the world. Every, you know, and it, it's usually an upside down angle. My friend Jarlith Regan sort of described how I sort of do, you know, like observational material is is basically about you observe something and the rest of the world goes, oh yes, I get, you know, I do that or I see that. He said, he's kind of what I do is observational material that no one recognizes. Yeah. So, so, it's kind of, so my worldview is so skewed, but I think I think everyone's gonna have the same worldview as me, and I thought that was quite a good way of describing the the angle. Yeah, there is. Yeah, 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 yeah we get that. <laughs> <laughs> is a, like a keen comedy historian if you say if, oh right yeah so he's always looking through the years and comparing back then to now and he was just saying back then if you um if you like create a character you were deemed an actor but nowadays right. if you create a character per se it's just like an expansion of your self really your being you know it's just another yeah yeah i i, I think like <laughs> like um when when you when you do characters you know because when when you're acting and stuff it is in you find you know you do a few different characters i do feel like there's there still has to be a seed of something in you to expand for me personally like like i, I sometimes think like you know if someone sort of says oh do you want to think about playing this character i go i don't know if i can because there's no part of me that has that starting thread. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Like, if it there, there was a there was a character that was um, a, quite quite brash character and very verbose and and I was just like, oh, I don't know what part of me to <laughs> to start from. So I, I I really feel like yeah, like these these characters have to have to start from something in you, but. I think, as you say about, about an actor, yeah, I guess when, when it when it comes to the character you mainly do on stage, yeah, it doesn't feel like acting. It does become 
it, for that time, it is you, which is quite weird. Yeah. <laughs> you, you are, you think, you think differently for that hour. It's a very strange thing. It isn't really acting. It's, it's just a different mindset. So I totally agree. It's sort of, because you are improvising and you are, which we are, you know, we, we're improvising now, aren't we? But in our, mm-hmm. in our own minds, if you know what I mean. <laughs> but you're, it's just switching mm-hmm. your mindset. So, yeah, I don't really see it as acting in that, in that sense when I'm, you know, I'm just doing stand-up or on a, a show being, being, you know, the persona. So, yeah, uh, it's acting when you're given a script and you're playing a character and you're doing it word for word, yeah. Your first major television credit came in 2010 when you played next-door neighbour Dan in the BBC free ah. sitcom Him and Her. Yes. What did this teach you about the workings of a sitcom which you were able to hone years later in Afterlife? Uh, him, and, him and Her was, was so... I, I do mean it, so lucky for me because um, I, I knew nothing about acting and any, anything of this world. And I got dropped into a situation with some like incredibly talented people. And looking back, I don't know if I'd have the guts to do it now, but it was, there was no sort of easing me in. It was, it was just get on with it. And I was working with, Russell Tovey, Sarah Soleimani, Kerry Howard, Ricky Champ, Camille Kajuri, and Richard Latson, the director, the, the writer, Stefan Gonolewski, who's won countless BAFTAs. I just got dropped into, you know, it was all by chance. I just got dropped into this incredible show with these incredible people and just had to get on with it. And I think, like, in at the deep end is terrifying, but it was just... But no one was sort of, I don't know, I think a bit of me was like going, well, they know I haven't done, they'll know I haven't done anything. So they'll sort of go, okay, so what you do now is, <laughs> but it was really just in at the deep end and, and getting on with it. And uh, I think I've, I've, I fell in love with, I'd always wanted to to be involved in a sitcom. Sitcoms were my way into comedy. And to be dropped into the middle of one, kind of was was just crazy and when I say lucky to be to be dropped into the middle of one that ended up winning a BAFTA and being such a a hit and to, you know and such so so well respected and Stefan uh, uh, the writers um become a very good friend of mine but I was always a fan of his in the um he was in a sketch group called the cowards with Tim Key Tom Basden and Lloyd Wolf and I was such a big fan of theirs, but I didn't I didn't know to what extent Stefan's writing ability was. I just I just didn't know. And I was I was I was offered this audition. I didn't I didn't know this at the time, but Stefan had seen me in Edinburgh and had had wanted me to play the part, but he didn't tell the director Richard Lassen this. So I auditioned. I've never done that character before. So I, luckily I didn't know. And, and luckily I got the call because <laughs> otherwise that would have been embarrassing. Um, and then, yeah, then I was in, I did four, I did four years of, of being involved in this incredible show. And, and I got to learn right in the middle. You know, I, 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 I look at, I used to look at Russell and go, Russell Toby, who, who played Steve and, um, Sarah, who played Becky, 
and I, I, like a thing I was like I don't know what you're doing you don't seem to be doing anything <laughs> but you're they were doing so much and I'd just be sort of baffled and then I, I learned that and the, the director used to give me this note, looking back, was basically, you're too big, but just think think the emotion, think the, think the thought of the scene, don't, don't sort of show it, and on all these things. And I realised that obviously Sarah and Russell knew this already, and then I was sort of playing catch-up a bit, <laughs> sort of going, oh, sorry, sorry about that. Yeah, I didn't know. And, uh, and, then, and then I feel like, like honestly, I feel like once we got going, I found found my feet, and um, hopefully, I was a, I was a, a, a you know, I, I sort of caught up a little bit. But yeah, I just just what a way to learn something, and I, and also with with acting, I did um, I've never done any acting, but I was working with Diane Morgan on her sketches, and she taught me quite a lot about acting and kind of that kind of thing. So I was just I just got really lucky. I just have to. You know, Diane's an incredible actor, and I just we just met on the circuit, and then I'm suddenly suddenly working with her. Has obviously gone on to prove to the world how brilliant she is, and I just kept getting surrounded by these brilliant people. So you just absorb all this stuff, and uh, yeah, so that's why I mean I got very very lucky. I just got dropped got dropped into <clears throat> to uh, to a world with these brilliant people, and I was like, wow, that was lucky. <laughs> <laughs> In 2012, you became Rachel Riley's assistant in 8 out of 10 Cats Does Countdown. I did, yes. Surrounded by some of the most comical minds in Britain, how difficult is it to stamp your own character on the show? Well, it, you're absolutely right. I, I, it's, ba- it's baffling who's been on that show like over the years. It's just like some absolutely brilliant people. But it's quite a generous show. It's a very generous show, quite a generous show, it's unfair. Like it it never no one fights for their place. It's all it's quite um there's a lot of respect. So I was very lucky again where I was sort of given a, a slot. So I was sort of giving a sort of a, a moment in the show to do whatever I wanted, which and I worked with a company there's a company called Zeppertron who so generous with their time and their patience and their like when they're working with me because I because I come up with these ideas and they were just like in the is it 2012 we did the first one did you say so yeah. in the nine nine years they've <clears> never <throat> they've never said no to me yeah. to an idea they've just gone let, let me <laughs> let, let, <laughs> and they were just and they, I, you know I'm very, I, I'm very good friends with the producers now and I would watch their eyes kind of kind of their eyes widen as I tell them the idea and I'll be like oh god this is the month where they're going to say look just sod off and and they would always come back and go okay so this is what we found out and I'd be like oh my god they just work so hard they're so generous with their sort of time and because one time I did uh, a thing where I I was a magician and I, I drowned my assistant uh, I was a, yeah, my magician's assistant, Fabio. I drowned him in, in a tank of water. I had no idea, but I found out afterwards that they had to reconfigure the whole studio because of having however many gallons of water in a studio is incredibly dangerous because there's so much wiring. Yeah. <laughs> but they didn't tell me any of this. They just reconfigured all the wiring and they spent hours and hours and they filled out all this paperwork and 
And I had no idea. They just they just gave gave their you know they just do everything to to make the show as good as it is. And then uh, so I've been yeah I was really lucky that working with them and the 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 space that the comedians give each other is very generous. I don't you know if you've seen the show you'll notice that the comedians get behind the other comedians. They laugh. There's no there's no sort of like trying to trip each other up or so it's a really lovely space to to be funny and and in the last sort of five or six years they've really been bringing on newer comedians and giving them this platform and it's it's really you know it's a very generous show I think and I've been yeah it's been I can't believe it's nine years dear god (laughs) (laughs) I was going to ask just based on what you said um did they ever say no to you about anything because some of the things when I'm watching it I think what is he doing? <laughs> How is he allowed to do any of this? And was yeah. there any times when they actually turned around and said, nah, that's probably not the right thing for the show? Although, no, no. Um, no. That, um, like, because there, there, there are issues on uh, just kind of uh, silly things, but like, um, if, if, if you, you know, like, if you if we talk about like, and, and I've become very, kind of I have an understanding of, of the sensibilities of channels and stuff like if you've got a joke with a, a, a weapon for example like a, if you've got a gun or something there's there's obviously connotations that come with that and, but sometimes my brain wouldn't go well I you know they just go they'll just remind me that that might be upsetting for people. And then I changed the idea rather than go, yeah, but I want a big gut. You know, it's like <laughs> there are times where they've just gone, well, let's think about people's feelings. And you go, oh, good point. But little things like that, but never like um, I want to drown my assistant. Or, <laughs> That's perfectly um, fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, or, or want to be shot in the groin yeah. by a paintball gun. Yeah, it's those sort of things they just make happen. And, and TV's so health and safety heavy. So they do so much work and I am never not appreciative. I, you know, I hope, I hope they do realize that because I just know what, how hard they work. And we have, we do have some baffling conversations though. I have, you know, they, they sort of send me pictures of blow up dolls, which one do you want? Or, you know, for whatever the idea is. So we have, we have these um, quite baffling work work-related conversations and uh and there is a, every t- every time there's a moment we go oh lord what are we talking about <laughs> <laughs> Oh, um, Josh was just asking. <laughs> uh, do you kind of have to give a heads up to Rachel Riley anytime you want to do anything, or is she quite? She's up. With... She, she's um, she's a great sport, and yeah. what I, what I tend to do, like. I, I kind of I, I hide my bits from everyone because I like to surprise everyone. But if there's a bit I need her to do something specific for, then we'll have a conversation. But I'll only give her. There's a, there was a bit where I played a 
a stuntman and she smashed a bottle over my head. Yeah. And, and, but in that show, that was the only bit I told her. Like I, I basically said, you know, when I turn my back on you, can you smash it? But the rest of it, she didn't know. Cause I want her to, I try and write it. So if I'm kind of abusing her in some way, <laughs> I want her to, um, <clears throat> I want her to naturally react to it. Because I think it's it's just more fun, and the same with Susie or John or Sean or whoever at the time. You just you just want them to be part of the fun. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like just for it's because I always enjoyed trying to make them laugh as well. Yeah. So so I we, <laughs> we, we the production would make a real effort to hide everything from them. They'd never be in the studio in rehearsal. It'd be a big screen round what I'm doing, so they'd get. They'd get the full impact, like yeah. like the audience. Uh, are there any new episodes in the pipeline of that? There are. We just recorded. Um, we've just recorded another load, yeah. And I've got um, I've got a few more ideas that I haven't used yet. Um, so yeah, there's. Uh, I shouldn't. I should know when they're coming out. I think they must be soon because um, they take a bit of editing. The uh, the countdown ones because they're they're quite. There's quite a lot of stuff. In them. So they always take a bit of time to edit. Yeah. They, they must be coming out soon, actually. Yeah, I can make a wally of myself again. So, so <laughs> we like to hear. Mm. Uh, surrealism has always been an important part of the British comedy landscape, from the Goons to Python to the League of Gentlemen to the Mighty Boosh. Mm-hmm. So, therefore, I'd be interested to know your comedy inspirations and how do you think your brand of surrealism contributed to the preservation of the British tradition. <laughs> Um, it's funny, like um, talking about Sean. I, you know, like he he had a he was someone that I I'm definitely influenced by because it was sort of I really love. I didn't. I never saw myself as surreal. I just I just saw it as sort of taking a different angle, and then you get quoted as it, and um, and like like I never thought of Sean as surreal. I just thought of it as as a, as a, as a having an angle that no like I I always thought with Sean used to have a joke about like he'd do a bit that would be so balmy or whatever and then he'd say oh, I don't have a lot of material stolen and because it was yeah you can't steal the bizarre stuff you know like it was it's just impossible but I always took that as oh there's a joke that no one else could do and I thought that was a really nice that's something I took on board. I was like, oh, if you if you can write something that no one else no one else could come up with, then that's a good that's a good starting point. Because there's a lot, you know, like I, I love I, I love mainstream comedians. I think it's it's a, sort of has a negative connotation, but I don't think it is. I think if you can hit the nail on the head and go, when you're gardening, this is this is what it's like, like McIntyre and people like that. So hard to do, but then there is it's such a tightrope because you sometimes it can be quite hack or someone else has done it. So it's a very hard thing to to navigate. Whereas what I like doing is going, oh, I've got this starting point. I've you know got this starting point that I feel is not a starting point someone else would take. And I guess that sort of has sort of manifested itself into. I guess being slightly surreal to people because they go, well, why are they also talking about that? But I try and ground it like Sean always did. It was never completely just off the wall. 
yeah. it was so grounded and stuff. It was then it would end up with him being chased in a hotel room by Madonna in the dark or whatever. And but it started somewhere <laughs> relatable. Do, do you know what I mean? And yeah. um, so, so Sean, particularly on the surreal, I I did love the Mighty Boosh. They were they were just fun. They were really good fun. Vic and Bob goes without saying. Um, but I think I'm, my 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 inspirations growing up were, were more sort of Billy Connolly and um, Forty Towers and uh, the two Ronnies and you know real joke people. Mm. That was where I that was where my first love was. Rather than and then then I as I sort of like like yourself, Josh, when you when you absorb a lot of comedy, I think you're taste kind of changes a bit and you want you want that more challenging kind of comedy which sean brought i think I got the first bit, but not the second bit. Uh, Josh was just saying about the even the two Ronnies were a bit surreal. Yeah, they were. They were. They were. They they really were. Um, it was because they were great ideas. You know, that I think that a lot of surreal stuff is just great ideas. Like, um, if, uh, well, One Foot in the Grave, you yeah. watched, which I'm sure you've watched. It's just got some really surreal ideas in this very mundane-looking framework. But, you know, they've got, like, lampposts coming through, you know, falling through the bedroom window, and like, you know, and that's, that's how they go to bed. And, you know, it's just these... I think really good surreal can be hidden as well, where people don't know that they're kind of being given surreal comedy. Do you know what I mean? Like they sort of, they go, oh, I get this. And you go, well, because really like something like One Foot in the Grave would take you little tiny steps to this point, which is so surreal that you haven't noticed you've gone from normal to utterly bizarre in half an hour. Because there's so many little pigeon steps. And at all of those steps, you go, yeah, I, I believe that. You know, like he gets himself in such a position where you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Each step is believable. So then you look at where point A is, where point Z is, and you go, how the hell did we get there? And that's, it's such a surreal show. You should, you know, if you haven't watched it for a while, go back and watch it and go, my God, that's weird. I <laughs> And it was very dark as well. It really was. Yeah, it really was. I don't know if you remember the pilot about it's um it's about him getting fired by yeah. uh, losing his job to uh, was it to like a like a, almost like a calculator or something. And it starts off with a man sort of depressed by his life and his, and you're like, God, yeah, it's a Pretty dark start to a <laughs> long. It was a robot. It was a robot. That's right. Yeah, you're 
<laughs> yeah, your your knowledge of you. I'm I'm clearly preaching to the converted about um, one foot in the grave. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you can ask him anything, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The last yeah, four years. You know? I, feel, I feel like this interview is around the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. 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 In 2019, you appeared as Jeffrey in the Netflix series Sex Education. Oh, yes, I did, yes. As a comedian, how excited are you about the limitless world of online entertainment? Well, on, online's brilliant. Like, it's just this... I've really, I've really got this bug about DIY in our industry basically the ability of anyone to kind of make something is really exciting like uh i think there's a it's um i was talking to my friend about it yesterday about something like a podcast and just not having to not having to um basically go through any filters is really exciting like um i love i love radio comedy but it's hard, you know, it's a hard, it's a lot of people wanting to get on Radio 4, basically. And, you know, now anyone can, you know, like, we've all got laptops and it's all got editing software on it. And you can just make whatever you want and put it out. My friend David Earl and myself, who I write with, every morning we we do a... We're not doing it at the moment because we're having a break, but we do a, a half an hour podcast every morning where we just talk inane nonsense. And we put it out every morning and that's what we do. It's just this sort of outlet for us and all these different things you can do without these gatekeepers saying you can't do that. Like um, I've got friends who have grown their profile by their online videos uh prime example is someone from my year and uh, my comedy year alistair green he i've known he's brilliant for years he's what he, he's possibly the funniest person i know but then he's found this this audience have found him because he's making these brilliant videos every few days and his his profile has just grown 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 and 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 that was just from him just being brilliant um putting stuff out and people going because the, the public are geniuses <laughs> they can see good people oh, they, no worries they can uh, is there a oh is this a, I really want to know what that is now it's just uh, it's just our landline phone. So, oh right, right. Yeah. I thought it was much more exciting. Than that. No, okay. not. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so so Alistair's got this. You know, makes these videos, puts them out, and I say the audience, the geniuses, and they go, "That's good. I'll follow him." It's one click, and then they're he's you know they're they're in each other's lives, and. It's just brilliant. And you can just see how, especially like younger comedians, they're, they're much more tech savvy. So they can just, there's no, there's no gatekeepers mm -hmm. going, you can't do it. Yeah. And, you know, especially with something through the pandemic and, you know, people sort of making all this stuff online and putting it out there. This, you know, this, if there's good stuff, it'll get found. And, you know, I, I did, um, myself and Diane Morgan did some videos a few years ago. And uh, 
And Ricky Gervais saw them, and that's how I got on his radar, and Diane got on his radar. And then a few years later, we're working together. You know, I did some stuff on Derek, and then we both did Afterlife. And that was from doing some stuff online and just putting it out there. And, you know, that it, it's, it's just mm. really exciting for people. You know, you can be seen a lot easier now. Yeah. Uh, you touched upon our next question, actually. Um, so, yeah, it's, but the question's about afterlife. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. The relationship between Tony and your character, Pat, is one of the most interesting and enduring parts of the show. Mm. As an actor, how difficult is it to portray a, such a crucial character so innocently? <laughs> well, it's when when Ricky sort of spoke to me about the character, it was it was started off as just like a, a postman who winds him up. And then it it kind of it sort of grows in the doing of it. Do, do you know what I mean? In the first series, it was a bit more um surface, do you know what I mean? I'd 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 wind him up and that was the sort of, it was sketches and then and then Ricky sort of found something in their relationship and and sort of basically made them more um more in touch with each other and have have a stronger relationship and that relationship grew. So I think Ricky would agree it was more of an organic thing. You know, sometimes, you know, like some some directors they kind of get you in a room and and you know, you play off each other for ages and then I can see why you do that now because we sort of did that on screen. Do you, do you know what I mean? And then Ricky went, oh, oh look, that's, that's really working. Let's, let's, let's take it a bit deeper, Yeah, which, which he's done. And then, the, you know, in the new series again, which is coming out in, I think, October, November. So it was quite organic, I think. Yeah. And, um, yeah, the, the hardest thing to work with Ricky is not laughing because he pricks around so much. <laughs> Yeah. It's it, and I and I think one of his gifts is he makes a very fun set, so everyone's very relaxed, mm -hmm. and I think that gets gets the best out of people, because when you're you know when you're enjoying it, you kind of let go more, and that's one of his skills. Is you know it looks, it looks like you know he's just. I always thought oh he's just messing about, and then I realised that it's a combination of messing about, but also he wants everyone to enjoy it, and he wants everyone to enjoy it because it'll be better. Yeah. So that's, that's actually, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and looking back at your career, what's your proudest achievement? My proudest achievement? Oh, I don't let, I don't let myself think things like that. I th the, thing I've, the, the thing I'm most proud of, honestly, is so pathetic, but it was, is, is having the balls to go for it. I'm try and make comedy living when I left my job I was very proud of that because I was I, I hadn't really I'm not one of those people I'm not like a risk taker and I was like it's something I really want to do it's really really hard to make a living in this you know to to even to be involved in the industry is really hard but I took a punt and then I got to do all these different things with these great people and I sometimes think oh my god if I hadn't had the balls to to leave my day job I wouldn't I wouldn't get to to do this and sometimes when I'm you know like all jobs I'm a bit like oh bloody hell this and that I do sometimes go hold on hold on yeah you you had an office job however many years ago and you could still be doing that and then I go oh yeah this is cool 
so I think I think the fact of having the guts to sort of give it a go, I'm very very proud of, and and all and all the other things that have happened along the way, I'm very proud of. But I think because they wouldn't have happened if I hadn't sort of, for once in my life, had some balls to go. No, I'll take you know because we all get used to. Uh, a kind of way of life where you go, oh, you know, I'm, I'm safe. I'm, you know, I've got a roof over my head. I've got food on the table. But I took all that away, which, looking back, probably gave my parents a heart attack. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, that that I guess it's quite a boring answer, but it's it's, it's the uh, truth. Cool. Mm. Do you uh, do you pinch yourself every now and then just to be like? Yeah, I'm working with your face today. I'm working with someone else today. I'm yeah, yeah, it, it, you definitely do. And I think if if you don't, you're a bit of a fibber because yeah. it's um, it's uh, like like I've just been filming um, a sitcom that myself and David L wrote, and I was just stood in this field, and there was there's all these different departments, all sort of you know like hundreds of people doing all different stuff and I was like oh my god because I you know I was just sat here with David writing a few months earlier just in my little office and now there's all this stuff going on and you're like oh my god how did that happen <laughs> um so yeah definitely and I, you know and then you, as you say working with Ricky and Sean and all these other amazing people I go what the hell that's that's weird <laughs> <laughs> And uh, finally, uh, what's next for Joe Wilkinson? What is next? Um, I have a, as I've just told you, we've just filmed a, a second series of our sitcom, The Cockfields. That's just finished uh, filming. Uh, it's editing at the moment. David and the director, Simon Hind, are editing that, and I'm looking at bits and bobs of that as we go along. That should be out in... October, November. For the last few weeks, I've I've been kind of um, decompressing after ten weeks of filming because they're they're long days with lots of learning lines and <laughs> and stuff. And I was just kind of oh god, didn't realise how tired I was. Yeah. And then now I I don't quite know really. I, I've got a few things booked in little jobs here, but I I'm not rushing back to doing loads at the moment because it's been such a busy year with writing and filming Ooh. and so on so um i think my missus is might have to kick me up the arse to get me writing again i think Oh, what was it like filming without Bobby Ball? It was, it was like I was saying about um, Sean earlier. I think it because you go through these chunks of time where you don't see people, and then when you were meant to see them, that's when it hits you. And we had, um, I, I remember so clearly where I was when Lucy Dixit phoned me and told me the awful news and. Our sitcom is sitting set in the Isle of Wight, and I was actually in the Isle of Wight writing. I just happened to be on holiday, but I was writing as well. And I was looking out to sea, and I got told, and I, I was like, I was obviously devastated. And I remember just going, "Oh, like this is the worst possible news." 
But I think it hit me harder on when we when we got to set again, and one of our one of the makeup ladies, Lisa, she got really upset, and I think it sort of hit us then, and it was really really it was really really hard. It was harder when when you know because Bobby was I wasn't seeing Bobby when he passed away. I was meant to see him the following few months. So that's when it hit me and we had to, yeah, it was, it was a real um, gut punch. It was so tragic. And I don't know if you remember, but the outpouring for Bobby was unbelievable. Yeah, massive. It, yeah. it, you know, it, it was just like, you know, they did the, um, the tribute show and, and, uh, I and uh, Lee Max said in the tribute show, he said it because he he was on he was in not going out as well, obviously. And uh, Lee said something, and it was like he said, "We just you know he'd known Bobby for a few years now, but he'd still go, oh dear, that's Bobby Paul <laughs> in his head. He'd go, that's Bobby Paul.' And I was exactly the same. And Diane, who one day lent, because uh, I I really hit it off with Bobby, like I really really hit it. I I was like. Oh my god! I think I'm friends with Bobby Ball. We just really, really hit it off. And Diane tapped me on the shoulder one day and went, I "Can imagine if you're a kid and someone had went over and said you're going to be mates with Bobby Ball one day?" <laughs> I, just, I just went, "Oh my god!" <laughs> it was, um, yeah, it was really, yeah, it was a terrible, um, especially to COVID. Just seemed so cruel. Yeah. You know, and it was it was only a f- few months later that they announced that we had to jab and just just yeah, it was tough and 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 Gregor came in and that was a really Gregor Fisher played as now playing his part and he he plays it so brilliantly but different, which is great. There's no sort of comparison and it must have been hard for Gregor to come in and kind of replace a legend and but he did it brilliantly but we had to be sensitive to to Gregor in these situations and 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 Bobby's wife Yvonne and you know there was a lot of um a lot of sensitivity needed yeah of course at, the, at that time and um hopefully we navigated it um in such a way that no one felt let down or or, or saw it anyway but yeah. so fingers crossed but yeah uh I'll miss I'll miss Bobby a lot, yeah. Well, tell me, Oh, yeah. Sorry to leave this interview on such a downer. <laughs> no, no, not at all. God, no, I, as I say, I love talking, I've, I've loved talking about Sean and Bobby there. Yeah, we started on a heavy one. We oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, it's 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 um it's what's ha- it's it would have been weirder not to talk about them. To be honest with you, there's been um two you know I got to work with two of my heroes, and but after both of their passings, I just went back and I watched so much stuff, and uh, I guess it's a bit of. Um, you what you want to do it? You will say it's just sort of, I guess, a bit of coping, isn't it, and so on. But both of them, I was just the, so brilliant, and just watching all this stuff, and there's so much of it, and so much brilliant stuff. I was like, wow! I just it was just such a sort of, 
I don't know. Not, not that, you know, it's weird if while, while someone's alive to sort of be going, I was going to watch all your stuff. Can you take people for, for granted when they're there and you're going, God, I'm just, uh, just working with these amazing people. And then they pass and you go, God, look at what you did and look at all this stuff and this joy. And it was just, yeah, two, two people to work with like that is, you know, that alone is, makes me very lucky. Every day for the last week, just social media, there's just clips of Sean and all this mess mm. just popping up and I watch oh. every day and you do forget little bits and pieces. Just yeah. Genius. Yeah. yeah. Genius. I, there's, there's one that I recommend everyone misses, uh, finds online, which is Rectum of the Year. Did you see that? You one? See that one yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's perfection. It's perfection. Yeah. It's absolutely brilliant. Even the, uh, the carrot game. Oh, the carrot game. What a genius. Yeah. yeah. Watch the carrot game, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you liked this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy. Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates on forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again, and hopefully see you next time.